Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Solo. You look good. A little rough around the edges, but good. Heard about a job. Big shot gangster putting together crew. I'm a driver. And I'm a flyer. I waited a long time for a shot like this. What do you think? Well, what do you know? You got a line on a ship? Yeah, I know a guy. He's the best smuggler around. I heard a story about you. I was wondering if it's true. Everything you've heard about me is true. <laughs> L3! Let go of the mean man's face. Who are these guys? If you come with us, you're in this life for good. You might want to buckle up, baby. give you some advice assume everyone will betray you and you will never be disappointed i got a really good feeling about this since when do you know how to fly 190 years old you look great push it Welcome back to the Star Wars Podcasts. Joining us are voice actor Alex Eading. Hello. Caro Nagisa. Hello there. And Debbie Morse. Hello. Both off sequentially yours. Okay, folks, this is going to suck for a lot of you to hear because I have already heard reports that you absolutely loved Solo. Uh, I don't want to take that away from you, and it is completely fine if you loved your experience. But as with Rogue One, I did not like this film much at all. And far from being the clickbaity headline of Star Wars fatigue, I don't think this has as much to do with it being a Star Wars, aside from the very specific character notes which affect me. I think that just like superhero fatigue, what we're affected by is mediocre movie fatigue. Not bad movies, but remember the lukewarm reception of Avengers Age of Ultron? People were calling superhero fatigue back then. It lasted a few months until Ant-Man entertained the hell out of everyone. For the record, I like both. But the perception from journalists is that one movie can represent an entire subject matter in film. Star Wars isn't a genre, neither is superhero, that much we've established. But the great ones in this pigeonhole invigorate us, and bland ones make us wonder whether we're getting too much of them. I'm frankly fine with this. Not everything can be Black Panther, although every movie should try to be the best version of itself. What I'm beyond fatigued by is fandoms. But as I said in The Last Jedi Show, fandom is dead, killed by fans. So these mutant gatherings of screaming digital man-babies, decrying femoids, cucks, and whatever the ever-loving fuck they don't want to see in their story about space aliens shooting lasers, have become the poisoned edge of that double-edged lightsaber that at one point brought lovers of nerdy ephemera together. I don't yet know what the The Last Jedi hating crowd have to say about Solo, and I don't want to know. 
I won't add any fuel to their fire of either attacking the numbered Star Wars films for their SJW propaganda that they represent, using this man-pain anthology entry as a stick to beat Ray and company over the head with, or whether they'll go the other way and continue to Photoshop Kathleen Kennedy onto Palpatine's body and say she cucked Solo and gave Lando an undeserved movie. I don't care. They're fucking crazy, and they ruin liking things. But I have some weighty issues with Solo, and they're worth hearing out because I don't say this stuff lazily. I examine why it might be problematic for me and some others. Because you don't know how important an element of filmmaking is until a version of it that is severely lacking is delivered into the mix of what you're seeing. Strangely, unexpectedly, confoundingly, unfixably, what bothers me most about Solo was the lighting. The director of photography was Bradford Young, who shot Arrival and Selma, both of which are fantastic, although extremely realistic in their depiction of events, and over 60 other films. But something was up while I was watching. Everyone was lit from behind. Whole scenes would go by where three silhouettes would be talking in a dingy building, faintly distinguished with sickly hospital lighting, straight out of the interior shots in Rogue One. Yet somehow this persisted outside. Somehow two silhouettes with faint grey teeth were talking in the snow. How do you light people badly in snow? Without lights shining on or to the side of actors, you can't see their faces, what their eyes or mouths are doing. Everyone is rendered in charcoal. There's less facial detail in this production of four dozen actors than The Scream by Munch. And at least you can ascertain emotion from that painting. I was happy to see Chewbacca turn up because at least his silhouette looked interesting, though he also looked like he might be a member of a German metal band. And that was intensely disengaging. When you see a movie at the cinema, picture a liquid spear coming out of your chest, Donnie Darko style, and connecting with the screen. That's a clumsy way of symbolising engagement. Mine was bumping up against an invisible wall of shadows the entire time, save for some nice external shots of the Millennium Falcon in space shot by the effects unit. Very occasionally I would wonder if this was all in my head, but then a blaster bolt or an explosion would fire off briefly illuminating everyone from the front for a nanosecond, and I'd see gorgeously coloured clothing, facial features, eyes, belts... You know, the stuff you buy a 4K TV to better appreciate. I'd say this is the worst lit blockbuster since Fast and Furious 4, but it's actually worse than that. By the time you get to films lit this poorly, you actually don't want to see the faces of the people involved. I can't not make this sound like an attack on Bradford Young's technique, but I can only say what I see. And what I saw was the shape of Han Solo's head talking to the shape of Woody Harrelson's head and not much else. A great script might have saved this, but they got some bland cowboys to write it. Some guy who adapted Dreamcatcher, Lawrence Kasdan, oh, the writer of The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and Regis of the Lost Ark and The Force Awakens, along with his son Jonathan. The words slid by on a conveyor belt, evoking no interest to me whatsoever. The story beats played out predictably, and by the end I was no more or less engaged than I was going in. A great director might have saved this. Howard helmed Willow, one of my fondest held fantasy films. Colossal fun and very campy. He directed Apollo 13 and maybe my favourite family drama, Parenthood. This is not a rank amateur. 
Now he took over from Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who were responsible for 21 Jump Street and the Lego movie, two of the funniest films I've ever seen. If their original version of this matched that humor, then I can see, A, why Disney backed out fast and kicked them. B, I cannot see why Disney hired them in the first place. What did they expect? And C, I can never let go of the version of this story that might have been. Like Del Toro's Hobbit, it's a phantom movie we will only see in alternate timelines, where being a little unorthodox was acceptable at the expense of brand uniformity. Han Solo has been a hero of mine since my father first held up the Kenner figure of Luke Skywalker in Jedi gear and pointed to his black-gloved hand and told me he thought that this guy was called Hand Solo. This was before I'd seen Star Wars, and I'm going to bet my father hadn't seen any of them either. I watched Empire and Jedi taped off the TV in rotation. As I became a teen and people started rejecting Star Wars in the 90s, Han was one of the few things considered still cool, though I loved all of it anyway, but he commanded a cachet. I loved his swagger, the way Harrison Ford commanded a scene, that glare and that pointed finger which says on no uncertain terms, you motherfucker! I love Indy. I named my dog Indy. My wallet is a Han Solo wallet. The only remaining artifact from my days of collecting master replicas lightsabers in the 2000s is my DL-44 blaster from The Empire Strikes Back, which sits not three feet away from where I'm recording this. And that emotional core of my favourite Star Wars film, The Force Awakens, old Han playing the sage, the regretful father who would literally do anything for his wayward son... He became even more special to me at this end amid the squalling chorus of man-babies crying foul. I recognised what had to happen, and it gets better, sharper, and sadder every time I watch it. Han Solo. I've been waiting for this day for a long time. Even after the fantastic video by the pop culture detective on why Harrison Ford is the perfect example of lionising a predatory movie romance, not taking no for an answer and going in to take what he wants, regardless of the protesting sexy woman who wants him really... Even after that video made me cry and made me really assess the good and bad habits I'd learned from Han and how I could approach his characters now as a man older than Han Solo in the original trilogy. He's been a fixture of my life. No actor could ever really encapsulate that. Joe Gordon-Levitt would be Joe Gordon-Levitt. Chris Pratt would be Star-Lord, but a little meaner. So, Owen in Jurassic World, but well-written and funny. And Alden Ehrenreich had enormous boots to fill and I hadn't seen him in any prior film. And he was boring to watch, as he performed one of my favourite characters for two hours and ten minutes, and that was Solo. By no means a terrible film, I loved seeing Donald Glover take up the mantle of Lando. He's more than perfectly cast, and I look forward to his movie, which can only be better than this. I quite liked Amelia Clark, although her character may as well have had I will betray you stamped on her forehead. She was more than capable of displaying Kira's painful ambivalence about her aims and how they clashed with what she also wanted. Lando's droid L337 was the star of the show and I would have loved to see so much more of her but of course the decision to take her out after just four scenes removed that spot of brightness. Nothing with this film's level of competence can really be considered terrible. What it is though is an unveiling of the life and shaping of one of cinema's all-time classic characters which plays out in humdrum fashion. I can't even say I was disappointed. I had no expectations going in since so much of my engagement hinged on a performance I knew virtually nobody could muster. 
If you played it too much like Ford, you've got Brandon Routh's Superman, who spent the whole movie in a Christopher Reeve suit. If he deviated too much from the mannerisms and speech patterns we know and love, he would be unrecognisable as Han. And worse still, playing against him is a slew, a veritable can-can line, of Han Solo-style-inspired characters. A Han-Han line, if you will, of somewhat laid-back, kind of criminal, charming, swaggering man-children with hearts of gold. Indiana Jones, for starters, John Bender in Breakfast Club, Jack Burton in Big Trouble in Little China, Mad Martigan in Willow, Casey Jones in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Corbin Dallas in The Fifth Element, Rick O'Connell in The Mummy, Logan in the first X-Men movie, Richard B. Riddick in Pitch Black, Jack Sparrow in the first parts of the Caribbean movie, Malcolm Reynolds in Serenity, Hellboy in Hellboy, new Jim Kirk in The Star Trek, Gay Perry in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Star-Lord in Guardians of the Galaxy, even Woody Harrelson as Tallahassee in Zombieland. All of these are Han Solo types. All of them derive their strength of character by being juxtaposed with someone more morally forthright. They are the Lancer trope, the contrast to what the good guy is not. They challenge his ideals. They force him to consider them. They represent the allure of selfishness. They are good men at heart, but they are not the good guy. And all of them, every initial performance I mentioned above, has more of that Han Solo spark than what I saw in the film Solo, a solo film about how Han Solo went solo and became Han Solo. And we're actually moving on from that character type. There's an argument for a little bit of that irresponsible man-child prick in all of the Marvel heroes, except Natasha, who was born aged 40 emotionally. But in this era of worlds, not trilogies, these men are being allowed to develop, and just being Han isn't enough. You could argue that this version of him is in fact a retroactive refinement, as in he's going to grow into this guy in 10 years. My issue was, I didn't see him in there at all. And the film was exponentially duller for the absence of this core figure, Han Solo. You can look at the prequels and see a big Han-shaped hole. There's no dry adult mocking the Force and fixating on his own petty crap while bigger things are happening. He functions as a contrast to the mythical mumbo-jumbo. He lets the air out of the central conceit of the Force and adds a much-needed human touch. Here, surrounded by criminals, if anyone was the Han Solo of this movie, it was Lando. I mean, Han isn't a complex character. He's funny, which this guy isn't. He's grumpy, which this guy isn't. He's arrogant in an entertaining fashion. But we can see it's a veneer and he's kind of scared, shitless underneath. That didn't really come across. He's reticent to care about people. And I figured that character development in A New Hope would be what this film could accomplish, at least the foreshadowing of, the reasoning of. Why is he afraid to care? And strictly speaking, it does. But in a fashion that suggests Han is afraid of betrayal, not because he's afraid that if he cares for people, they might die. That was always what I gathered from A New Hope. If he only has to look out for number one, he won't let anybody down. So there came the perfect moment at the end of the third act when Woody Harrelson and Han were debating whether to help the rebels or not. And Harrelson walked. And I thought, oh shit, that's perfect. Young, slightly more idealistic Han does what Luke does a decade later. He sticks around to help the freedom fighters from the oppressive villains. Harrelson, his mentor, cheeses it and then comes back at the end to save Han's ass, only to die. 
and the bad guys get most of the stuff anyway and kill most of the good guys, but a little of it is saved, enough perhaps to consider that sacrifice worthwhile, thus giving Solo a reason to want to replicate that selflessness later, but be very torn over it, afraid for his own skin and afraid that it won't do much good in the long run anyway. Instead, Harrelson betrays Han and Han shoots him. Lando betrays Han and scarpers with his ship. Danny betrays Han and flies away in the Dark Tower, taking over the mantle of the Shadow Broker. Everyone either dies a hero, dies a betrayer, or runs away taking what they wanted and saving their own skin. Except for the ragtag rebels who talk about hope and leave Han standing with Chewie on a cliff going, Did I just learn something there? I suppose the running away with the booty is a pattern that he replicates for years and then breaks, following no example but the selfless Ben Kenobi, who gives his life for Luke and Leia on the Death Star, thus inspiring Han to be a better man, and wind up doing the same thing for his own adult son some 34 years later. I'm being torn apart. I want to be free of this pain. I know what I have to do, but I don't know if I have the strength to do it. Can you help me? Yes, anything. So what this movie represents, what Han's movie represents, is the shitty lack of decent role models that Han Solo had until he hits his mid-30s. But plenty of people liked it, and I hope our guests are prepared to talk about it a whole bunch, because we are in a rare instance where I am recording this show for you guys. But I have very little to say beyond my initial essay. I would have skipped Solo altogether, but everyone asked me, where's Rogue One? Where's Rogue One? Throughout all of 2017, so I figured, get the fucker over with. So, question one to my lovely guests. And I am not going to argue with you guys at all, because I would far rather you found the good bits. What were the best bits of Solo to you? Well, first of all, I thought most of the casting was excellent. Uh, Donald Glover, as you mentioned, is absolutely phenomenal as Lando. He embodied the character so well and gave, you know, what uh, what was basically a character who has been sort of fan-developed over the years a lot of weight and a lot of depth while still keeping him fun and interesting. And also L3 was phenomenal. She reminds me of Comrade Greeting Card from uh, Futurama. Isn't that right, Comrade Greeting Card? The Bushwa human is a virus on the hard drive of the working robot. I even liked, to an extent, Aldrich Eckert's performance of Han Solo, not because it's Han Solo, but because it was serviceable for this film and if anything sort of I think made The Last Jedi work a little bit more in the sense that they sort of backfilled on certain aspects of that particularly his metaphorical testicles his metatesticles if you will Um, do you mean the dice? yes (laughs) (laughs) I was like, uh, metaphorical testicles? Did I miss a bit in The Last Jedi? Yeah, 
Side note, by the way, those golden dice that turned up in The Last Jedi as totemic of Han Solo, they were there in the original trilogy. They were there in the original Star Wars, hanging from the rearview mirror in uh, The Falcon. Next time you're watching it, keep an eye out for them. I could be completely wrong, and like maybe everyone was like, that is so Han Solo. No, I, 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 I tend to agree with you. It wasn't super Han Solo, but it was serviceable for what is basically a serviceable movie. This was a very by-the-numbers movie, and the fact that it's you know coming out five months after Last Jedi is, I think, more disappointing than it would have been otherwise. I think I would have liked this movie a hell of a lot more, and I don't dislike it, but a hell of a lot more if I hadn't seen Last Jedi less than half a year ago that basically threw out all the tropes that this leans into so heavily. And Alex, you actually straight up really, really like Solo, so tell us good things. I... Uh, first, I want to come out and say that uh, all of y'all are super wrong about everything. <laughs> and that no, no, no. Even I that the I Lost Jedi is good, a, I wouldn't come at you in a combative sense like that. Uh, I uh, just got out of my second viewing, uh, so I've seen it twice in the last four days since it's since it's been released. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, this movie was so fun! <laughs> oh, this movie was so fun! Yeah, I I just. In the middle of the summer, where, like, I was... I'm sorry, let me start this whole sentence over again. You okay. can keep that it was fun, uh, because it really was. But I just... I, I don't want to justify it. I don't want to, like, take a point where... You're right, you shouldn't I, have to play defense it, like, on this. There's a lot of... A lot of people are going to be completely on your side about it. Yeah, and you're right, it is fun. Unquestionably. Um, it was It was just... It was a, a ride, and I really enjoyed the, uh, the fact that there were some beautiful – I'm going to do cons first. Um, there was some stuff that I wasn't crazy about. Um, there was a lot of really clunky, heavy-handed dialogue inferring that, just so yeah, everybody knows, this is part of an established storyline and this is back in the past. We know. That's why we're here. Um, <laughs> there were there were some like really direct nods and really direct references in general to the future that I just – I thought were – they were too much. Um it was a little bit of a waste of film time, in my opinion, to throw too much time at what we could have been looking at or experiencing some new stuff. The biggest trouble with – which, honestly, I think that is the biggest trouble with a film that is an earlier segment of time than an established canon or timeline has. Having said that, um, there were some nods that I just really brought me to uh, a, a, like an emotional high, which – this is the point. That's what they were doing uh, in these moments. The first time moments that happened in this in this film where Han and Chewie experienced um, seeing the Millennium Falcon for the first time together. When uh, it's all Han and Chewie stuff, basically. It's all when yeah. Han and Chewie um, when Han met jumped to hyperspace <laughs> together for the first time. When they both put their hands on the jump uh, levers. Um, seeing uh, seeing a character who Han barely knows put together, uh, kind of disassemble and then reassemble a blaster quickly, and all of a sudden I realized, oh, that's the silhouette, I know, and I have known for years, and tossing this uh, modified DL-44 to Han across a fire um, while they were hanging out, just kind of talking about what they wanted in the film. It was this cool, like, what do I want out of life dream moment. There was some cool stuff going on there. Um, I 
I had a ball. I had a ball with this one. Partially also influenced by the fact that I, I was able to see it twice with my two favorite people in the world. Uh, the first time, my very best friend, and who I have known for oh, probably 10 years or so, and we our main connection point at first was Star Wars. We are insane Star Wars fans. He flew down from where I'm from in Toledo, Ohio, down to Dallas, Texas, and we made a weekend of Star Wars this Aww. weekend. Aww. We played a bunch of uh, board games or tabletop Star Wars games and other stuff and hung out and had a good time. And then today I finally got to go and see it with my wife, who is also a Star Wars nerd. Um, she is just as high on the nerd cred level as I am as far as just like general excitement for Star Wars. But I'm higher on the I know dumb nerdy facts about Star Wars than she is. Uh, it's just this beautiful connection point that I, I, I was able to have and kind of celebrate. And I, I wonder, uh, you guys have brought up some really interesting and cool ideas about, sorry, I didn't mean to use the word interesting, Alex. Ah, <laughs> penalty. Really cool thoughts about the movie that I hadn't actually considered before. The lighting was something I did notice more on my second viewing. Um, and I think the thing that it brought me, uh, that brought me down a little bit during the second viewing today was that it was really noticeable when something bright did happen on screen, mm -hmm. whether it was Han hot wiring a speeder or a blaster fire coming out of nowhere or, or something. They, they really like their bright flashes of light in this film. Mm. And I noticed because I was wincing when it was happening today. Maybe it was because I was closer to the screen today than I was before, but um, there was something going on there where my eyes were used to a uh, much darker screen environment and then something would flash and happen there. Um, I'm going to stop talking in just a second too, but That's I want to okay. talk. I talked for ages. You uh, like, we, we yeah. need to give it some love. <laughs> well, thank you. Not by the way, because we want this to be a balanced show. We've never had that remit. It's about passion and cerebral deconstruction. And unfortunately, I can't muster any for Solo beyond what you've already heard. Um, I also want to mention that I think the pacing in this film, while it was, I will acknowledge there was definitely some by-the-numbers kind of influences here, but I think the pacing in this film was decently solid. I heard some people complaining about the, the first 30 minutes or first hour feeling too long or too clunky or something like that, but I really didn't find that for my for my viewing experience. I felt like they gave us... Um, fun moments, they gave us dramatic moments, they gave us uh, action, and they gave us breathing space to experience certain things. Um, there wasn't any heavy, heavy emotional weight in this one like there was in The Force Awakens, where we needed several minutes of chill time after Han was killed. But, um, but in this one, I did feel like after an action sequence, which I, I was engaged by all of the sequences, too be it the heist scenes, be it the, um, the uh, actually, you know what? The heist scene is something I, I would love to mention, too. I have been waiting for a Star Wars heist movie since Disney picked up the, 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 mm -hmm. the licensing for this, since Disney bought Lucasfilm and announced that there would be, uh, there would be individual off, you know, solo stories by themselves. I have wanted kind of an Ocean's Eleven in the Star Wars universe. And I thought that's what Rogue One was going to be. And I think I mentioned it when we podcasted on that. 
But this is the movie that brought me the heist high that I wanted, where we got the big plan and the um, we've got to improvise now because this crazy thing we couldn't have planned for is happening and, and just running there and back again. And oh my goodness, I want to just cheer for the whole Kessel sequence. I loved the whole Kessel sequence. Mm. I fell asleep, oh, yeah, but uh, I'm sure loads of other people loved it too. hearing someone gush about something is always always enjoyable because everyone deserves to like what they like absolutely um so sensing a butt there's a (laughs) big old butt coming (laughs) (laughs) um overall i quite liked the movie um i felt like the casting was absolutely spot on and i i agree with karu completely that i think donald glover's lando was perfect and I want him to get his own movie because mm-hmm. I want to spend two hours with that guy he, he was amazing and and for fuck's sake let him be pansexual just on screen on screen anyway I won't go down I won't go down that rabbit hole but he was he was perfect um, personally I really liked uh, Aldrich Aaron Reich? Alden. Aaron Alden Reich. Aaron. See, uh, I, I liked his performance a lot, personally. And um, I, I felt like his Han Solo was a character... I felt like he did... He found a good balance between... I bought him as eventually growing up to be Harrison Ford. Versus putting his own spin on things. So I felt... Personally, I found the character very charming and entertaining. Um, and I liked Amelia Clark a lot. I-, I thought, again, really good casting. I was excited to see Paul Bettany because I hadn't realized that Paul Bettany was in this movie. Mm. And that was and, a nice surprise. And he was great. Um, and so the most of the visuals, I, I agree with you, Alex Alexi, <laughs> um, that on the Kessel sequence, I, I thought that was great fun. Um, I thought that the, especially the way they used the music, I thought they very judiciously interspersed, interspersed bits of the main theme in like when they succeed and you get the little burst of, which I can't hum at this moment, but the little burst of the typical Star Wars theme. There was mm-hmm. quite a bit of the, the rebel theme. Da, 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 in there. Oh. Yeah, it feels yeah. very okay. high. And so I, I liked a lot of things about this movie. The place where I felt like it fell down. Oh, before I say it, let me also say, like, Han and Chewie and the chemistry between the two of them, I adored the scene in the shower where you could just see the feet. Yeah. That, that, cracked me up endlessly that was awesome um and I'm, I'm like oh Han and Chewie you're best ever um 
However, that's those are kind of the big hits of what I really liked about it. The place where I really, really feel like the film the film fell down was the writing, and I feel like all of the actors were game and they were there to play and they did as well as they could with what was frankly a really terrible script. There was a lot of a lot of what basically amounts to wanking off the fanboys. <laughs> yeah. See, this makes me think that the, f- the fanboys will like it because they like wanking off. And that, that bit at yeah. the end was... Des- <laughs> you know that bit at the end was designed to make yes. fanboys go, Mom, Mom, do you know who that is? I don't care. It's Darth yeah. Maul, Mom. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Didn't yeah. he get chopped uh, in half? That's the only thing I remember about that movie. Yeah. <laughs> That that scene bothered me just because it was a promise of something that we will never see. We might see. We, we may yet one day, Mr. Frodo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Continue. Much. Sorry, Debbie. I'm sorry to do you. Yeah, you were talking about fa- wanking off the fanboys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there were a lot of things. Like, like, I agree with the scene of him getting tossed the blaster across the fire. Mm. That was a nice little touch. That's sweet. I yeah, very sweet. And it was it was a little thing. It was there. It was a nice addition. His chemistry with Chewie, that was great. You know, that's something I like getting to see how they met. I love that. Oh, my favorite bit of fanboy wanking, um, apart from that, was just like so, like one, like 1% of 1%ers. Like um, Danny kicks someone's ass off camera. We don't actually see her do any cool martial arts, but the robot's like, whoa, that was really cool martial arts. And how do you know how to do that? And she goes... Terrace Cassie, which is a PlayStation game, Masters of Terrace Cassie. They were like, let's make a Tekken out of this. And it was terrible. But like, she knows it. It's now a martial arts. That's canon. It's canon, mom. It's canon again. (laughs) So I'm nicking this bit from We Hate Movies. Same as I nicked the whatever the ever loving fuck earlier. I love that phrase. Yeah. But carry on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, the writing was just where it just kept. I kept feeling like I was getting bashed over the head, not just with the wanking, but with this story is we've seen this story a million, million times. Can you be specific? Like, because I always like to challenge my my guests. See if like, what did it feel like if um, in terms of heist movies and movies where, you know, gangsters are falling in with other gangsters? I don't know if I can specifically say I, I could I could specifically name other stories, but what I can the thing that I can do is hit various beats mm-hmm. that that just I felt like like oh we've heard this a million times stop which is <laughs> this is the the innocent boy side note also anyone who says Ray's a Mary Sue I'm sorry but Han in this movie this is the biggest Mary Sue I've ever seen oh yeah. Anyway, but it's okay because he's a male. Ah, uh, yeah, uh huh, yeah. That's not a Mary Sue. We always saw him fly the Millennium Falcon. We know he he's can do it, so he does. He's Jeffrey. Yeah, I, I have two very specific fingers raised at all of those fans. <laughs> They're not thumbs, and, and it's not the thumbs. <laughs> um. By the way, I'm being complimentary in that voice. I would far rather talk to that nerd than the actual people bitching about the Last Jedi. Still, uh, yeah, yeah. 
Asterisk, you don't have to love or even like The Last Jedi. Plenty of rational, reasonable people don't. I'm talking about the subhuman creatures who devote their working week to making videos like Why The Last Jedi Is A Total Failure, with a big old picture of Admiral Holdo in the thumbnail. For the same reason Hillary didn't get those key votes, and we're all fucked right now, whether we live in America or not, because some boys don't like mean mommy being right all the time. Let's get it. I'm more that nerd than I am those guys bitching about uh, the Last Jedi. Uh, uh, continue, sir. <laughs> um, it's it's this you know innocent boy who grew up in hard scrabble streets, and but he's he's getting out, and he's he's. He's going to get betrayed, and he's going to learn to grow up, and he's going to learn his lesson, he's going to prove that he's as amazing as he claims to be. But he's going to have his down moment when everybody brings him down. But, oh, no, he planned for all of this the whole time, and he's going to come out on top because, of course, he is. And he's not really actually going to get any character growth whatsoever. He's a loose cannon who also has to be right all the time. And... He doesn't follow the rules, but that's because the rules are wrong. There is a beautiful um, theory about Han. There's, have you guys heard the, I think I might have. Go for it. I don't know if we've talked about it. The puppy god Han trope. (laughs) No, go for it. No. Han is either a puppy who accidentally succeeds at everything, or he is a god who just always, always does everything right. Han uh, either accidentally succeeds at everything or um, the Force just loves him and he literally cannot fail at anything ever. <sighs> that, that's a, I, that sounds like a competent theory. It makes a lot of sense. I, I, am, I am sighing at the... Uh, of course that's the... Of course that's what it is. <laughs> <sighs> oh, not, not to mention another thing that just made me, again, I loved Amelia Clark's casting, but dear God, you you knew from moment one that she was going to betray him. Hmm. Yeah, to the Pokemon League. Yeah. <laughs> which is why, which is, based on their symbol, that's what I'm calling them now, the Pokemon League. <laughs> and looking at it, I was like, and... We had a whole, Karu and I had a whole discussion yesterday on the way home from the movie. And the fact of he brought up, well, go ahead and say what what you brought up about the writing. um, About when she says, oh, I've done things you would never accept me for. Yeah, they wrote themselves into a corner when she starts talking about that because there is literally nothing that she could say that the audience would have bought into as something that Han could never forgive her or would look at her different for. I think that started out as an outline, just like, oh, she's done something that no one could ever forgive her. And then when they went back through and tried to expand on it, they were like, no, we'll keep that. Yeah. Yeah. They they couldn't, it had to stay ambiguous at the end because literally nothing that, because it's, I mean, like, for example, what could she have done? She could have killed people that they knew, but we didn't know them as an audience. So, it doesn't matter. Like, nobody was established back on Corellia other than Han and Kira. Um, she could have, I don't know, become a prostitute? Do you really want to dip into that in the Year of Our Lord 2018? Uh, do you want to be the people who are like, yeah, you could never forgive me because I was a prostitute? No, nobody wants to do that, particularly not Disney. Um, I was a dancer she, she, for Jabba the Hutt. 
<laughs> yeah, I was just answering for... We, we haven't established that yet. Who Jabba the Hutt is yet in this film. Han has no idea who that... So, I mean, like... And by the time you get to something that's sufficient that the audience is going to, apropos of nothing, say, oh yeah, now I can see why Han would see her differently, you are getting into really ridiculously over-the-top <laughs> stuff. I ate puppies. Just just ate them for no reason. <laughs> Raw. <laughs> also, it'd be nice to have a, um, a, a heroine with a dark side whose attitude to this is, you know what? Yeah, I've done some shit. You know, the upside of that, I am alive. Thank you. Yeah. Which was yeah. kind of Han's excuse for most of the things that he failed with in this movie hmm. was I got away with my life in whatever form uh, it you know was required, and whoever he was bringing that excuse to was didn't really care about his life at all. Mm. Yeah, you just made a clicking sound. That's a rock. That was really funny. That was good. <laughs> that yeah, was I, good. I gotta give that was a really good. Like, I really? feel like that might. It was so funny. It doesn't work with any of the rest of it. I think that was a Lord and Miller one. I think that. Yeah, that was a Lord and Miller. Yeah, there you yeah, go. So we could have had a whole movie where everyone's very offhand like that the whole time, and it would be full of really quotable lines. That was one of the things that bothered me. Han Solo, even in his in Return of the Jedi, is eminently quotable. I don't know, fly casual. Like, just the, everything that Harrison Ford says as Han in the original trilogy is eminently quotable. And a hell of a lot of that was handled by Lawrence Kasdan. Kid, I've flown from one side of this galaxy to the other. I've seen a lot of strange stuff, but I've never seen anything to make me believe there's one all-powerful force controlling everything. There's no mystical energy field that controls my destiny. It's all a lot of simple tricks and nonsense. Nobody worries about upsetting a droid. It's because a droid don't pull people's arms out of their sockets when they lose. Wookiees are known to do that. You're a great help to us. You're a natural leader. No. That's not it. Come on. Uh-huh. Come on. You're imagining things. Am I? Then why are you following me? Afraid I was going to leave without giving you a goodbye kiss? I just assumed as a Wookiee. I can arrange that. You can use a good kiss. Truly, this won't help me. Hey! Save your strength. There'll be another time. The princess, you have to take care of her. You hear me? Huh? Hey! I think my eyes are getting better. Instead of a big dark blur, I see a big light blur. There's nothing to see. I used to live here, you know. You're gonna die here, you know. Convenient. This is a ship that made the Kessel Run in 14 parsecs. 12! 14. A magical power holding together good and evil, the dark side and the light. The crazy thing is... It's true. The Force, the Jedi... Extra points to Harrison Ford's indelible performances if you were quoting along with him there. Now let's hear from Solo, a Star Wars story. Ask yourself which of these two men is commanding the scene. Can I ask you a question, Captain Calrissian? Anything, Han. It's Han, but that's okay. I heard a uh, story about you. I was wondering if it's true. Everything you've heard about me is true. 
And you can make a Han Solo movie about the time prior to when Han could command a scene. But they don't tend to make big sci-fi blockbuster extravaganzas about people who are quite quiet and a little bit mousy. They should. There should be more introvert sci-fi. But if that is your decision and you are going with someone who can't command a scene, and you don't give me a reason to really root for them, and if you put them up against someone with the charisma of Lando, I'm gonna wanna watch a Lando movie instead. And as I said, this was written by Lawrence Kasdan. Like, yeah. he wrote Empire and Jedi. I don't get how this happens. It doesn't make any sense. It feels very safe. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah that's the word that I keep coming up with, is safe. There's, there's one bit where um, Amelia Clark says to him, I know what you really are. And then he goes, it's, it's, it's a really nice bit of vulnerability. He goes, ha what? And, like, his face drops, and it's in the trailer. And um, I thought at the beginning, like, he says, my name's Han. Um, and the guy goes, uh, let's make a name up for you, Solo. And I was thinking, are they going to do, like, a secret special blood family bloodline? Please don't. Because uh, I don't care where, what family Han came from. Yeah. But it does kind of leave that dangling. But then he says, what am I? And she says, you're the good guy. And I thought, lady, just because he is good guy does not mean he is good guy. I can understand why Han would look back on his behavior in this and think, I was very naive. Uh, that's never going to happen to me again. I'm going to be um, kind of the, the, the wise guy from now on. I, I believe that's what the point of the movie was. But it never really made me think that Han underwent a big transformation. And, and there was never a moment when it was like, right, now I really am Han. And then he was like pointing fingers and, and, and actually being the Han that, that we know. It, it didn't feel... Connective. It felt like a character called Han Solo, who was a bit of a Han Solo type, but not a great one. I wonder how hard, and obviously we're, I think we're seeing the result of, of how difficult and how in a corner the writing might have just been mm. when Disney was like, we need, a, we need a Han Solo movie. Everyone loves Han Solo. This will make money. Let's do it. Um, if we think about just the, the, the story and the character arc of, of Han over the course of the five movies from A New Hope and on – no, I'm sorry, four movies from A New Hope into The Force Awakens, yeah. we see a bit, we see an arc. We see the, the, big, the big change in his, um, in his self-worth and his status in The Force Awakens. That's where the real big – uh, adjustment to his character has been that's where he ends his uh basically lets his son kill him uh, you know there's there could be arguments for whether han knew that's what ben was talking about or not um he's not stupid yeah but where he basically gave himself to the will of his son to try to save him that's where that's where this is all going. And when you look at it from that perspective, that I'm not a writer, but that would be incredibly intimidating to try and take on that project. So um, I don't want to make excuses for Solo. Granted, again, I like this yeah. movie quite a bit. Uh, but that's that's a hard job. And I think we got a safe product because of how difficult that was. Because where do you start that character? We have to somehow thread that needle of in in two different ways and i think honestly i think alden ehrenreich threaded the needle uh which was impossible of playing 
a character that is so loved and so established and still taking it in a place that felt solid to me. I have no problem with Alden and his um, and his portrayal of Han. Hmm. I think I think he did a good job. I noticed there were definitely some writing choices that were made for him as far as we want him to sound like Han. So this is how he's going to speak. And we want to see, you know, we want to see certain things call out like Han's battle cry. He screamed a lot in this movie, <laughs> which I thought was great because it calls me right back to A New Hope when he screams and runs down the hallway chasing a bunch of stormtroopers. Or there's way more of them than he is. Um, but with the writing, where, where can you really start when the next thing in the canon that we see is – this skeptical, cynical guy who doesn't really trust anybody, who's just out for himself because he's got a price on his head. And I think I'm talking myself into being okay with what has happened so far in this movie as a path, as a starting point. But also, Alden, I believe, is signed for up to three movies. So we could see we could see more coming. We could see more happening. With him now, granted, signed for three movies could mean when they do like a Boba Fett film, Han walks by in the background or is at the bar when Boba Fett's like looking at somebody else, and Alden turns around and be like, "Watch it, bounty hunter," you know, and that's and that's it. That's him in the movie. I hope that's not the case. But I, I don't think there's any doubt. Just looking at the way movie releases are structured these days, that they'd have been ready to jump on an, on uh, green lighting a sequel. Um, if this does fantastically well. Um, But that said, looking at the uh, opening take for the Star Wars movies, this did three million more than episode two, Attack of the Clones. Is that good? That is not good. (laughs) No, that's not good. Is Clones the one that's made the least because everyone was just waiting for Sith? It's not quite the least on opening weekend, um, but uh, episode two took uh, just over 80 million and so far Solo's taken just over 83 um, for its opening weekend. Episode three took over 108. Uh, Rogue One was over 155 million. Last Jedi was 220 Force opening weekend. Awakens. And Force Awakens was 240, nearly 248 million for its opening weekend. Which allows so BuzzFeed this... to write a whole Star Wars fatigue yeah. series of yeah. podcasts. Indeed. But this, oh. this... I don't expect I'll ever experience Star Wars fatigue, but mm. that's that's me. Yeah. <laughs> but But going purely by box office numbers, this is... A third as popular as The Force Awakens. Mm. Oh, I do want to. One thing I did, I did want to mention also that my biggest bit of fanboy wanking, in my opinion, is the fact that Han basically funded the start of the rebellion. Yeah. That pissed me right the fuck off. Really? I thought he was the good guy, though. (laughs) well just the fact that he basically he got them that right at the end there he got them the refined he gave them the refined fuel uh, stuff the the expensive fuel whatever the fuck that was called and he gave it she's like oh we're gonna start a rebellion and I'm like so you're telling me Han was instrumental in starting the rebellion fuck off (laughs) yeah that that pissed me off also 
also, I, I had a little bit of trouble with the, the Marauder leader reveal in the sense that this is not somebody I know. So when she takes off her helmet and she's Merida, I think we're supposed to be like, oh, <laughs> she was Merida. Oh, it's well. a girl. The, the leader is a girl. Who could have seen that? I'm like, guys, really? Like when, we know, like, girls can be strong leaders. Where where this is not yes. a surprise to us. Well, well I, they, they did. They gave Star it so much Wars weight. Where there was a strong leader woman in it. Uh, Quite the opposite. Yeah. I, like I'd seen the trailer and I saw Danny walking down the steps of the um uh, one of the the ships wearing like a big like black thing with her hair going crazy like that. And I went, hang on a second. And when Emphis Nest was like jumping around on the train, I was like, she's definitely moving like a woman. Is that Danny? And then, like, he's gonna meet her, and she'll be like, "Yeah, I heard you had a good yeah. time on the train." And then I had you find thought. out that's her, and that's that's a good reveal. But then, of course, yeah, like you then see them in the same place. You're like, "Well, that's definitely not her." And, and then uh, I was like, "Well, is this thing she's not telling her I'm a clone of Danny, and the real one is her?" And it's like, "No, just like <laughs> I'm a criminal, and 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 she, who's she? She's just someone." That was the big reveal that she was someone. And when that helmet came off, I went. Is this girl Beckett's daughter? Is that why there's so much weight here? Is she related to Beckett somehow? Is Beckett um, Woody Harrelson? Yes, Beckett right. and Woody Beckett. Harrelson. I'm looking I at thought, the... like I don't know. I thought she could have potentially been um, Beckett and Val's daughter, and that was the big reveal. But then they were like, no, we didn't do anything with it. We just wanted to be dramatic in this moment. I'm, I'm, looking, yeah. at, I'm looking at the posters for the first time in in a while uh, and they are beautifully colored bright shiny they are everything the film isn't and i'm looking at beckett and he's got this gorgeous little sort of errol flynn like mustache and and goatee combo and it's not quite a van dyke but it's close enough and i'm like woody harrelson had a mustache that's how little facial definition I got in the cinema. I'm clicking on this I, thing. I here. I'm looking at his Woody face. Harrelson. It, it just looks like stubble. Like it's. Yeah. I couldn't see shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, folks, but I do like to see time. faces when I see films. <laughs> I do like to not experience like, oh god, I'm going blind in the cinema. <laughs> it's. It gave me a headache and it made me sleepy because if I can't look at anything. What am I? Will I was like I was getting a solo audio book. Okay, now it seems like we're harping on it, and and that's that's no, never fun to listen to. So uh, let's yeah. let's move on from that. Uh, did uh, did any of this challenge or change the way you viewed the period between episodes three and four? So like you were like, oh, so that's how it happened. I'd always imagined it was like this. I would say it gave me a sense that the Empire had a growth period. You know, if you watch like the prequels into New Hope, you know, by New Hope the Empire is supreme. The prequels, it seems like they came in based on a vote, and then suddenly they were the Empire. 
but this gave me more of a sense of transi- of a transitional period, similar to how the new trilogy is giving me a sense of the First Order rising rather than just being the new Empire. Mm. And I really kind of like that about it. This took place pretty much smack dab in the middle of 3 and 4, didn't it? Yeah, it seemed like about 10, 10 years, years after until New Hope. 10 years before the other, or 9 years before the other. Um, yeah. Yeah, I like the idea of kind of showing us the the empires on the rise, bringing that into uh, into its fullness. We're seeing just the the inkling of the beginning of a rebellion, um, led by this girl with freckles. And <laughs> we never saw anyone like during that war scene at the beginning. We never saw anyone that they were actually fighting. There was a lot of imperial troops running around going, "What are we gonna do?" <laughs> and, and we, it's the Battle of Serenity Ridge without the uh, bit of sweetness or drama. Yeah. We did get a, a throwback into Rogue One because that one guy who works for Saw Guerrero was mm-hmm. there in the Rebel group. Oh, they could have gone up against Saw. That would have been great. And Paul yeah. Gullet! He could like finally like have that... gotten into the battle and shown you what Paul Gullet can do. Yeah. I like to think that the uh, told, that the Shumagorath thing at the end was in fact just a really big Borg Gullet. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happens when you let a Borg Gullet survive in space for long enough. <laughs> Uh, can we talk about how beautiful Rio was? Yes. Yes. John Favreau's uh, Ardenian. Oh my goodness! Yeah. I oh, didn't was- recognize the voice the first time I watched it. Like uh, I knew the voice, and I didn't know why. I couldn't name John Favreau hmm. uh, until I looked him up later and went, "Oh, of course! What a dummy!" Sharon, imagine uh, kind of um, a dead-eyed duck from Bucky O'Hare, but not a duck. Rocket Raccoon, but without swearing or and being four funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, or being massively Rio- violent. <laughs> Rio brought just a really fun flavor to that first little crew of thieves uh, and crooks that that Han met and tried to latch onto. And I, oh, he made me laugh most of the time he was talking, especially when they when Han was predicted to be chasing at that girl from the past. <laughs> oh, mm. Is she nice? Does she have sharp teeth? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he he was delightful. I, I actually felt his loss because I yeah. liked him immediately. They uh, the two breakout characters really got the shaft in this movie. Yeah, they did. Who was that? Who was the other one? That was L three. Oh yeah, L three. The uh, the yeah. fantastic. SJW I also like the droid. way that uh, Rio moved. That was great animation. His movements mm-hmm. felt very natural. They flowed. It's one of those I bought his anatomy because they clearly took the time to look at how they built this character and say all right how would this guy move and how would he negotiate our set what would a shirt look like that was built for this guy i noticed at the second viewing yeah 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 i complete he seemed present on screen he seemed like he was actually there and not it didn't seem like cgi with no weight or yeah it helped that he on wasn't anything. on screen with people a lot of the time to give them like they're looking at the wrong place uh but yeah the fact that they really did a good job of making him feel real yeah yeah rio was great yeah and i like the whole train sequence i think the train sequence was really well shot it was it gave a good sense of where everything was. I, I, again, this is just Ron Howard being a very good nuts and bolts filmmaker that mm-hmm. he, you know, showed us a wide shot of the set we were about to be on, and then put us there. So I always had a sense of geography. But he also, you know, having the train tilt and move gave enough 
movement to the scene so that it didn't just seem like a flat train going at the it entire time. It kept it visually interesting. Yeah. It also gave us a little character uh, relationship moment where Han and Chewie, uh, where Chewie was in trouble and Han was able to help pull him out of that trouble and gave them just a little bit more of a connection, just a little bit more of a reason for Chewie to appreciate Han. Um, Chewie is magic in this movie. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, Yunus Suotamo is playing Chewie now. Uh, He's learned very well from the master. He does. His presence and his nuances are very Chewbacca. Um, Chewie is not a speaking character, but the way he was written and the translations with the dialogue felt really good. Um, I am great. I also thought they did a pretty good job in this film to give us some information about Chewie and include him in more moments to help build him as a character. But I think Chewie could have done with a little bit more agency in this story. Agreed. Um it is really easy to take a non-English speaking character and railroad them into whatever you want. So you keep them as set dressing because they're part of the established timeline. Um, and I don't think Chewie got a hundred percent railroaded here, but I would have liked to see more character strength brought to Chewie. Um, and I would have happily traded some of that for some of those more overt or goofy nods that said, Hey, this is a prequel to that star Wars stories you like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is, are there any things that could have been altered to make it a stronger movie? Do you think that, that uh, be beyond fleshing out Chewie a little more? And for, for me, just a lot more L3. Because I think, like, if she had been in it from very early on and died at the end, that would have felt... Or, or even just not died. In the Lando movie, I think if you got to kill L3, it would have to be in the Lando movie, which yeah. I also want to see. Yeah. Yeah. Because she yeah. she was a star in this. Oh, she was a star. And she was such a... She was an allegory. She was... She was a voice that we need to hear more of today of uh oh what was what was it that she said where Lando Lando said do you need anything and she said equal rights equal rights thank you she said yes. equal rights and I was like we okay thank you we need <laughs> we yeah. need more people to realize that this is a thing I'm very glad that it was a woman's voice who was delivering that line ah hmm. oh. The, yeah. she, and they're so snappy too. Yeah, yeah. Like she had that ready. And like this is an exchange they've had tens or hundreds of times before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't feel like Lando was dismissive of the idea of equal rights, but I think he was dismissive of. I've heard this L three. I know. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yes, we've we know we've yeah. we've been down this road before. Yeah. If I could trade my cape collection to give you equal rights, I would do that. Ooh, would he though? So many capes. Uh, I, he would say it. <laughs> I love his cape collection. I want if I had that cape yeah. collection, I would wear capes every day. Part I would be wearing a cape right now. Do you really need eight club. capes? We're only going for three days. <laughs> eight capes? Yeah. He has a whole wardrobe full of capes. Exactly. A walk-in right. wardrobe full of more. capes. <laughs> I had the thought. And I'm embarrassed to say it, but while they were in the cape closet, I thought, could I pull off a cape? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is no. It's a I thought left we've the movie all theater, the lights came up, realism kicked in. Yeah. No capes. That's, it, that was really hard for me not to think that. <laughs> at that stage. But yeah, um, Danny looks good in a cape, specifically as yeah. well. In all actuality, the L3 conundrum was the biggest revelation for me in Solo, and I knew they weren't going to really explore it. She's a droid who wants to be more than a slave, and unfortunately that busts wide the whole mythology. 
Imagine instead of a robot, she was a woman of colour, sold to Lando, who I suppose in this scenario would be just a cool alien in a cape. She wants equality and to be treated with respect. In effect, she wants to be free. Suddenly that's not quirky and funny anymore. Suddenly it makes every single Star Wars film and game and comic and animated show troubling. Like when they make things all gritty and realistic for the action and we're asked to think about all the real people suffering and dying before going back to our entertaining laser battle. It's not the first instance in Star Wars of robots breaking their bonds of slavery by any means. Background weird-looking character IG-88 was a bounty hunter as well as Forlom, and the comics and Clone Wars have had several more thought-provoking ruminations on AI. In particular, I recall a touching story from the Marvel comics in the 80s about a droid named Ellie who fell in love with her rebel spy owner and then found him tortured to madness by Vader. It's heartbreaking. But this is the first time in a Star Wars film that wasn't just a throwaway line from Worry Wart 3PO just for laughs. Do you think they'll melt us down? And as with the house elves in Harry Potter, once that genie is out of the bottle, it's hard to put it back in if you're of a certain empathetic mindset. Dobby is a free elf. And Lando puts part of L3's badly damaged consciousness into the Falcon's onboard computer system, and then Han wins her from him in a game of cards. Cool. So yeah, that's another reason Solo bugs the living hell out of me. But let's talk about why Solo is entertaining for everyone else. I was going to say, I'd love to talk about Dryden Voss for a second and then kind of let people run. Who how was they Dryden Voss to... again? Dryden Voss was Paul Bettany's character. They all have made up Star Wars names. Take one name that sounds completely normal and combine it with a name made from real words. Or take a normal name and add or change a letter until it sounds spacey. So that leaves you something like Samden Cross. Trumpo Wexler, Albin Solitaire, Abraham Gimbal, Chip Blasterbolt, Rev Burpo, Moby Roderick, Garther Cola, Kara Moonlock, Jimmy Scrambles. Some bad guys aren't called Darth. Their names are usually just two words that the writers decided sound sinister. Sallow Kane, Rickshaw Purge, Shred Cadmium, Fence Black Spool, Tusk Abattoir, Ominous Quash, Bad Slice Dark Jaw, Jimmy Scrambles. And Dryden Voss. No relation to Quinlan Voss. Um, he was the villain in this one, and he is honestly the first Star Wars villain I have legitimately been frightened by in a long, long time. Mm-hmm. I don't actually remember how like my feelings were about Darth Vader and Palpatine back in the day because I grew up with them. But other villains in Star Wars like Darth Maul and General Grievous and Count Dooku and Director Krennic were either cartoonish or fairly impotent in their villainous ways. Um, but Voss is a threatening wild card, and he spooked me every time I was watching a scene with him. Because just being in a room with Dryden Voss 
is a is a coin toss as to whether or not you're going to be able to leave that room on your feet. And see, I really liked Paul Bettany's character. See, that's interesting because um, Dryden Voss didn't scare me in the slightest, uh, and I didn't care what happened at all. Whereas Kylo Ren, his impotence and his reaction to that impotence, his violent overreaction, scared the living shit out of me. And he had the power to take away someone we genuinely care about. That scares me so much more than Paul Bettany doing the psycho routine. I didn't think about Kylo when I thought about this. There you go. Kylo is very spooky. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, he was more scary in... Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying not to just be a contrarian fuck here. But it's really hard. <laughs> Um, uh, carry on saying good things that I completely disagree with. <laughs> I, I also liked Dryden Voss quite a bit. Um, I got the sense of gangster from him in a way I never did with Jabba the Hutt, even though they used the word gangster for Jabba and not for Dryden. Um, and my only kind of problem is that it's yet another person with plasma weapons, like, the more Star Wars gets made, the more they find ways to make lightsabers that aren't lightsabers, which makes me wonder why lightsabers were so special. I put this down to the fact that blasters are now mundane. Our heroes very rarely get killed or even injured by them. The mythos of the world has made guns fun rather than horrifying. Lightsabers were special, then Lucas threw them all over the place, and now the new films are trying to get them back to being exceptionally rare and dangerous. And knives are genuinely scary, because they don't take much skill or pressure to do a person's serious damage, and in the hands of crazy, evil people, they can be very intimidating up close. And because it's Star Wars, it would feel wrong if it was just a steel blade, so they give it a laser edge. For the kids. Do you want to know why I use a knife? Guns are too quick. You can't savor all the little emotions. Uh, apparently, uh, Paul Bettany, who has worked with uh, Ron Howard in the past, he was in The Beautiful Mind, like texted him a while back and uh, like on finding out that he was making it and went, you know that time in a man's life when he realizes he's never been in a Star Wars and Ron Howard sent back, <laughs> just give me a few days on this. <laughs> and he got him the part. Does anyone know anything about what was in the original Lord and Miller version? Because they, nope. they, they started shooting. They had done some of this film before they were kicked off. I believe this helped my viewing, actually, is knowing that trouble happened on this set. Hmm. That something during the production happened. Directors were, were out. A new director had to come in. Changes like this happened. And I did not expect much. So kind of like when Richard Donner was fired from Superman 2 and replaced by Richard Lester. It's a good enough film considering. Yeah. And, and I, hate, I hate saying that. I don't want to say that because I do really enjoy the movie. I liked it the second time as well. But um, I think it did help me going, this, uh, this could be rough. Let's see what happens and try to go in with an open mind where... With Last Jedi, I was stoked. I was ready. I was on board. And I was rewarded.
So again, any other alterations you would have made to the film to make it stronger? Make Kira a more interesting character. Yes. How? How would you alter it, if you could? Make her feel like a person and not just a collection of tropes. Give her... Give her just a couple of scenes, even if they're just flashes, between in the intervening time. Show that she does still care about Han. Show that she thinks of him. Show that, at least at first, the things she was trying to do were to get back to him. Get them back together. Show her as... Show her as considering her options instead of just jumping right into, okay, I'm killing Dryden Voss. Okay, now I'm taking over and, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't actually have any real feelings in the end is what it seemed like. You know, give her some sense of conflict and that she actually did care about Han, at least a part of her did. I, I bought that she did. I bought that she was in two minds about it. When she's looking out the window at him, she is... There's a little bit of her going, Oh, I would so love to live with you, Han, in your castle. Fair. Okay, okay. I just couldn't live with myself. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree with you on that point. Maybe it's more... Show some hesitation in the... In the... Like, when she calls Darth Maul. Oh, yeah, she was t- straight on that ring. She was like, I am on that thing. Let me get onto Skype with uh, Darth Maul. Yeah. yeah, yeah, give me 30 seconds of... Give me 30 seconds of she looks at it, and, like, she kind of looks at the door where Han left. She looks at it. Give You know, give me some sense of yeah. conflict. Give me the crossroads moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although the Skype yeah. call makes sense as why the hologram was so grainy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Skype. Actually, that the Darth Maul Skype was something I would change. Um, I would have established the stakes that she's dealing with in that scene. Because why is she calling Darth Maul? Why is she doing this? Why is this the better choice for her than hanging out with Han for the rest of their lives together? And the answer is because Han falls in love with Leia, and he can't be with her. Yeah. But you know, I, I need to know what was so attractive that taking over the Pokemon League is going to be good for her in this case. <laughs> Pokemon oh, League, uh, of course, was the Red Dawn? No, Crimson the, Dawn. Crimson, Crimson Dawn. Dawn. Yeah, read about them in Time magazine. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I was thinking that. Uh, <laughs> I loved it when they, they said, you know, and, and who did these monsters become? And then this mute old lady draws a circle and then puts a dot. And I'm like... Wow, I, I I bet they wish they'd really established that iconography earlier in the film so that we could tell what that symbol meant. And I'm sure yeah, they did, but it just didn't impact on me. I'm like, oh, I suppose that's you their symbol. You saw it on his ring, and you saw it on her brand, but the thing is that her brand, we never get a really clear shot of it. Great. She keeps turning her wrist before I get a chance to really see it. I kind of like what the... What would it have been like if Kira had rea- reacted more strongly to Han showing up on that yacht. 
So in this scene, Danny has just seen Han. It's been years. She's a different person now. And seeing him brings back feelings of the girl she used to be, now in conflict with the power-hungry gang leader she secretly aspires to be. You got it. Scene 22 Alpha, take one. <sighs> okay, action. What are you doing here? I, well, that's kind of what she did. Like, I, like... My first instinct, like, my first reaction was worry to that moment. I was thinking, oh, no, she's going to think that he's just tooling around the galaxy and left her on that planet. Hmm. And she's caught him in in his, like, adventure time. But, no, she was chill. She was so chill. And that should have been a clue for me looking back on it for the Yeah, she pretty much the on the back and goes, her. hey, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I had written that scene, it would have been her, like, throwing him against a wall and like punching him in the face. You left me explain yourself. What are you doing out here? Um, which also could have brought some more, um, the more to their, their relationship just of, you know, then now Han has to work for, her, you know, trying to, yeah, then we don't get, together. then we don't need to have the, you wouldn't believe the things I've done, the non-specific things I've done yeah. in the last three years. Yeah. You Thanks. left me, I got jaded and now I'm a gang leader. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another change I would have probably made is that instead of the Marauders being such unambiguous good guys, the proto rebellion, just make a Marauders and make Han make a choice based on self-interest like, uh, what's up? Like the Pokemon League is going to kill me. They're not, so I guess I'm with them. That would feel more Han Solo to me. So, what would you want from future anthology movies? I would love to see a Leia movie that is a political thriller. Hmm. Yeah, like a flat-out political thriller where she is a teenager, you know, 15, 16 years old, the rebellion's going on, she is getting ready to become a senator for Alderaan at this young age, and intrigue is going on in the palace someplace, and she has to sort of maneuver her way through this. Uh, I mean, ultimately, the, the the important thing in these movies is stakes. With Re with Rogue One, like we knew they were going to succeed in what they were trying to do. We knew they were going to get the plans. The the worry was, are they going to survive? And then they all died, and that should have felt huge, but it felt like, oh well, no, wait a second, we didn't know any of them at all. So no yeah. stakes there. Yeah. With Han and like when when Chewie was in danger, I was like, you guys should be endangering the characters we don't know and making us care about them. But then like yanking them back and making sure the but they just killed the ones we don't know so there's no sense of peril for anyone except yeah. uh, maybe Woody Harrelson who ended up you know betraying him and then uh, uh, Kira betrayed him and so it just felt like they they didn't get how to make stakes out of what they had Yeah. and with Princess Leia um, we know she's not going to be discovered as a rebel spy that that's not going to happen. We know it categorically can't. So they need to have stakes attached to it that if to keep her identity by the end, something terrible has to be paid as a price to keep her safe. And for that really to be what's that. at stake the whole way through. I was really touched by the Woody Harrelson death scene too. Um, I thought it was handled very well. And while there was definitely some fan service there too, 
um, oh yeah, see, Han shoots first now, he learned. The connection point that I had was when Han, yes, he pulled the trigger and killed Woody. For one thing, they were safe with it and had Woody's character say, you did the right thing, I was totally going to kill you. But they also, Han closed that distance and held Woody as he died, and they had a connection point where there weren't there were no stakes there was no other survival issue there because it was done Woody was done and he could rest and be real for a second and I I enjoyed that very powerful moment Woody Harrelson is an amazing actor always very talented yeah so yeah he totally sold that agreed Uh, going back real quick one another thing that I'd like to see from another anthology is no more heist films and don't get me wrong, I love heist films. I adore them. They are my favorite subgenre of film. But so far, both of the anthology films have been heists. Guys, there are other things to do in the Star Wars universe. No, steal stuff. That's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. So, Alex, you were talking about um, danger on characters that we know and how it really doesn't matter. And I, I honestly, for a few seconds, I did subscribe to... Like, oh man, is Dryden Voss going to kill somebody that I love in this? And obviously, the answer was no. But I did feel some of that fear of, uh, like, oh, what could happen if you know? Because Han and Chewie were in danger. But for the Boba Fett movie, if they set it in the right time period, we could experience that danger of the main character not knowing his fate. Yeah, this particular clone might die, and the Boba Fett we know is a different one. Oh, no, I was just thinking about, like, get him out of the Sarlacc pit, like it, what happened in the novels. Okay. That would work. And then, be, yeah. no holds barred. Pan down from the twin sons of Tatooine, uh, we are now close on the mouth of the Sarlacc pit. After a beat, the gloved Mandalorian armor gauntlet of Boba Fett grabs onto the sand outside the Sarlacc pit, and the feared bounty hunter pulls himself from the maw of the sand beast. Okay, this is exactly... And we realize uh, that he survived his fall uh, during the battle at Jabba's uh, palace ship. Then do a hard cut uh, to a repurposed uh, Imperial destroyer, uh, which has now been taken over by the rebels. Uh, Commander Luke Skywalker, now a full Jedi Knight, uh, training new Padawans, uh, is using, ironically, uh, his father Anakin's red lightsaber, which will be uh, a, a symbolic, I think, visual for his battle uh, with how to uh, both bring about the new uh, Jedi Order uh, while still um, acknowledging his father's uh, fall from grace. This is uh, as he is training the Padawans, we pan outside of the control uh, window to a nearby asteroid where we see, and please allow me to finish this because it's going to seem like a bit of a jump, we see Thanos. Well, it's got James Mangold directing. That That's really yeah. reassuring. Cause, uh, yeah, I, that I, makes me feel good. Because you've got to look at, uh, at who directed these last two humdrum uh, anthology films. You've got Ron Howard, who is, uh, you know, a, a prestigious director, but he's not known for taking massive risks or being particularly no out there or, or, or taking big stylistic visual choices. And then you've got Gareth Edwards, who is known for his miserable, slow-paced monster films, who made a miserable, slow-paced war film, except it's not really a war film. I'm not going to start on Rogue One. Poor Gullet. Yeah. Um, but, but James <laughs> Mangold... 
with uh, um, the Wolverine, like two, the first two acts of the Wolverine are fantastic, and all three acts of Logan are beyond brilliant. You know, chances of turning Boba Fett into something more than just a bu- bunch of fancy clothes is it's way higher. For a Princess Leia film, you want a female director, you know, manifestly. For a Lando film, you want a, a director of color. Th- these are going to be the ones that actually take risks. I know that like, you're saying it's going to be safe to have a Leia movie. It's it's not. They're going out of their way to have a female-led movie. Like, list as many female-led, high-budget action movies as you can. It wouldn't be a long list. It would not be a long list. There aren't Wonder many Woman. at all. That's not. That is a risk. And having a, a, a you know person of color sci-fi movie as 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 the helmet that's a risk. These are by their very nature that if they 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 can't really just go the 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 standard road on this. They're going to have to get someone who has a vision for it. This this layer political thriller that you were talking about, by the way, it did occur to me that the the setup you need for that is she has two close friends Mm -hmm. that they they are a tripod and they do this together yeah and like uh padme with her decoys you know that sooner or later these friends are going to end up having to sacrifice Mm. themselves so that leia can get through Mm. but there's also a possibility that two or one of them might Mm. get get through it so that there's those stakes the whole way through and leia's i I love absolutely yeah yeah i love that That'd be great. Get Jimmy Smith's in to play what's his name? Bail Bail Organa. Organa. Yeah. Yeah. And we yeah, can yeah. retroactively fix the Bechtel test issue for <laughs> all of Leia's canon. Yeah. Get a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh guys, do you think one of these ladies is gonna be race mother? By that point we'll already know. So fuck it. We can like uh, uh, as of now, like any Star Wars film made post episode nine, unless they I don't know. I feel like JJ is going to go backwards on that thing and and do so. I, the, the the last thing I want to see is episode nine being just fan baity because those fans, the, the ones who railed hardest, rudest, angriest against the the last Jedi, don't deserve a film that oh, is made for them. I, I, and I made so it already. It's cool. And watching and watching people talk about how this thing has been taken away from them when mm. they act like that. I made that okay. film for them already. It's called The Last Jedi, Righted by Fans. It's about six minutes long, and yeah. it's just a mass of contradictions. Are they claiming credit for Solo's disappointing box office yet? I don't know. There was a there was a boycott Solo movement, so you know yeah. I'm sure they will. It doesn't matter. They only see what they wanted to see. They don't know they're dead inside. Good point. End of. Right, so that was Solo. Um, hope you guys liked it. I did. I enjoyed it. I'll probably show it to my dad when it comes out on DVD. Right, so where can people find your stuff? Caru um, and Debbie first. You can find us both on sequentially-yours.com, where we we do deep dives into uh, comic book media. I talk about books themselves. Uh, we both do comic book-based movies. Uh, right now, I am reading all of the Fantastic Four from the beginning and making videos as I go along with that. Jesus, uh, like the, the back of the Kirby Lee era. Yeah, I, I, I just I just finished um, forty three issues and the first three annuals, um, and I'm working on the second video for that right now. And yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun actually. Did you read the one where the alien invades and it starts trashing the place and then it's like after all that yeah. it was only a little boy. Oh yeah, yeah. The the Infant Terrible. Yes. Yeah. Total classic. Oh yeah. That was the first Fantastic I, Four story I ever read. I found it in an annual in a jumble sale for two P. Oh, wow. That seems <laughs> that seems about right for that issue. 
And Alex, where like where would you steer people to uh, to find your best stuff? Um, well, uh, if you're looking for anything related to my voiceover or voice acting work, you can go to alexeding.com. That's A-L-E-X-E-D-I-N-G. And uh, if you are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas, where I am now, you can always come and see uh, me perform at the Dallas Comedy House. My improv uh, performance troupe is usually on the schedule over there. We're called Apple Cider, and we're hilarious. This episode ran long and rambled a lot, so there's a 45-minute bonus podcast of everything that didn't make the final cut coming to our Patreon at the $5 level this week. Because the production of School of Movies is funded by our Patreon heroes. And our special $15 sponsors get their names written in the stars. So thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Rune Lord Firionel, Luke Hatfield Nickord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Dachler, and Lorraine Chisham. And next week, our last commissioned show of the season, as we tackle the mostly forgotten John Boorman rumination on mankind versus nature in the Emerald Forest. The week after that, our Guillermo del Toro season begins. We're skipping over Kronos and Mimic, neither of which we love, to start strong with the devil's backbone. So your homework is to track that ghost story down and watch it beforehand, because it is exquisite filmmaking. Stay tuned for an audio-only version of The Best Jedi, Righted by Fans, my supercut, which is available on YouTube for you to view, which gives those rabid bastards the story they wanted, and the classic John Williams Han Solo theme from The Empire Strikes Back, which I wish was in this film, but like everything else, isn't. I'm fine with that, though. I'm not furious, I'm not blaming anyone, just a little sad that it wasn't a better movie. If you loved it, I'm happy for you. So, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And may the Force force be with you. Skywalker, I have your lightsaber. I'm your father. Really? Yes. Well, that was a bit of an anticlimax. I mean, it's just the same it's as... not an anticlimax. It makes perfect sense. Shut up, woman, and make me some daughter snacks. Okay. We've got the First Order on our tail. What are we going to do? Well, for starters, put you in charge, hotshot. Good idea, woman. Now make me some Poe snacks. I'll be in the space kitchen making everyone space ants on a space log. We have to scramble Rogue One group to fight their TIE fighters in space. We're with you, Ho. Also, no jokes. This is a Star Wars, goddammit. Your Jedi training begins now. So start by lifting those rocks. Okay. Now show me your saber skills. How's this? Hmm, you seem really well practiced. Well, I mean, I spent most of my life as a scavenger on a desert planet. This meant I had to get good at climbing and learning the inner workings of starships, which has been a huge help. I had to fight to survive, which means getting pretty good with this quarter staff, 
and I found that translates pretty well into saber skills. I beat Kylo Ren. I mean, he was wounded and emotionally shattered and trying not to hurt me so he could get me on side. And yeah, I never really started using force powers until recently, but it feels reflexive. Like I grew up kind of loving the fragments of Star Wars stories I could find. So I knew about as much as you did when you were a kid. And you picked it up pretty quickly. And I lived in the symbolic fallen husk of the Star Wars franchise, just waiting to get on its feet again. I had a doll of you. That's creepy. So yes, I am fairly proud of the skills I've developed. Not good enough, you're a Mary Sue. Do you even know what that means? I heard it a few years ago. A woman was talking about it. Great. Let me tell you about the Force. It's an energy field that surrounds and binds us. Especially if you're born with super special blood. Okay, go on. Eh, that's about it. Now lift some more rocks, and don't you go confronting your shadow. So this is it. Just pretty much the Empire Strikes Back again. Yes. No. This time there's a surprise ending. Therefore it can't be a remake. Step aside, woman. I have to lift space rocks to train for my big fight. Why did you leave? Well, I can tell you. It definitely wasn't because I had any flaws. Well, that's all right then. I'm Rose. Pleased to meet you, Rose. I'll be over here, not taking part in this story. Care to join me? I'd be delighted. Don't you two want to go to Canto Bite? Nah. Doesn't seem like any part of that section might be important to the overall thesis of this movie. Plus, our plan might not work, and plans have to pay off. What about in Empire, when they go to Cloud C- Shush, holographic tiny butthole eyes woman. Make me a finwitch. You got it. Mirror of Erised, show me my parents. Hello there. I'm Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I'm a Star War. I'm confused. I'm 19 years old, and you died like... 34 years ago. I'm as puzzled as you are. How did it happen? You know that immaculate conception that spawned Anakin? The Force homunculus, yes. Turns out it was just a Force ghost. Forced himself on Shmi, and then mind tricked it out of her head, just like motherfucking Superman. But who was my mother? Well, as you know, there was only one woman in the whole galaxy, and that's the way it should be. Leia. Leia is my mother. Bury your feelings deep. Hang on, that makes Kylo my half-brother. Yes, it does. Damn. Oh, not to worry. We Jedi are all about keeping four-strong bloodlines pure. Ugh, pass. No, Ray, wait. The fans. Well, I suppose if he can stop being such a... whiny little bitch mama's boy. Yes, that's the spirit. Princess Leia, watch out. Kylo Ren is attacking the bridge. <sighs> I'm totally pulling the trigger here. Wouldn't want to bitch out on killing my own mother. Oh, <laughs> Well, I guess I'll use the Force to stay alive. No way, Princess. Nobody ever saw you training, and the Force can't do that. Also, I just die in space. Fantastic. Thank you, gentlemen. That was a close one. We almost looked stupid. Thank goodness Admiral Akbar is still alive. Ray, you need to go and confront Snoke. Seems about that time. Be sure to ask him who he really is. Oh, go on then. Who are you? I'm really a clone of Luke. My real name is Luke. That doesn't really tell me much about your character. I mean, you're nothing like him. You're more like Palpatine. That's because I am really a clone of Sheev Palpatine. The Emperor. So, basically, we're still doing all of this again. No, because I'm really a clone of you, Ray. We're both clones of Palpatine. Not seeing the resemblance. That's because... I'm really... Mace Windu. I don't know who that is. Actually, 
I'm really missing Jaja Banks. Like the robot chicken sketch? You took that seriously? No, because I'm really Darth Plagius the Wise. Again, no idea who that is. Some people do. Like four people in the audience. And to them, that makes this film perfect. But how can you be all of these people at once? We all fell into a vat of midichlorians. I'm not using the M word. And I emerged. The sum totality of over 9,000 force points. And that means that everybody's fan theory was correct. And nobody's was. It's a zero-sum game, child. That's not how a zero-sum game works. Silence! Make me a Snoke Witch. (sighs) Thank God you're still alive. Private Haldo, what are you doing? I was going to ram our ship into the First Order fleet at hyperspeed. What have I told you about physics, woman? These things need to be explained by Scotty first. Attack the Hoth rebel base. Give it everything you've got. No, wait! That's Luke Skywalker out there! Kill him! He's racked up like 90 kills, and he hasn't died once. See how he battles Brienne of Tarth. So skillful. Luckily she didn't die. Just like our supreme leader, she still has a lot of backstory to fill out. Now he's fighting Darth Maul. How is that possible? If you know your canon, it really does make perfect sense. You see, there was this one issue of one comic with a time hole. But the First Order are throwing everything in our noble and very fine army at him. How can he still be winning? He's a hero character, and that makes him stronger, tougher, and more better than everyone else. Did he just force push a heavy assault walker over? That's right. We win, bitches. Now I have to teach some men how to be Jedi. And finally, the Han Solo and the Princess theme plays throughout The Empire Strikes Back, but because Leia has her own theme... That kind of makes this Hans.